The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Katrina. Imagine driving in West Raleigh, if you would, and as you're just tooling down the road, you see the vehicle in front of you is a bus that says North Carolina School for the Blind. That makes you happy. They're, they're out and about on some excursion. That's a good thing. They need that sort of thing. Maybe they're going to a petting zoo or the water park or probably going to a concert or something like that and enjoy some good music. But lo and behold, to your astonishment, they pull into the North Carolina Museum of Art. And you're thinking, that's, just, that's peculiar. You weren't going to go to the Museum of Art, but you got to pull in behind that and check that out. What's going to happen there? You see them get off the bus and go into the museum, and there they are going from painting to painting and sculpture to sculpture while the uh, tour guide explains every painting and, and sculpture. Just looking in bewilderment about what's going on here because something doesn't seem to connect here. Um, on the way out, maybe you hear one of them saying, like, I really appreciated the, what Caravaggio does with the light and the shadow. Uh, and then you might like, say, like, listen, I, I just got to ask this question. I understand you to be challenged in your sight. And what did you mean by describing light and shadow in Caravaggio? By Car- Caravaggio, one of my favorite painters. And they would say, like, oh, actually, I really, didn't, I really don't appreciate it. I really didn't understand it because I'm blind. But that's what the guy said. You may not like to go to art museums. Probably some of you think that's boring. And maybe one of the reasons is because you feel like you don't know how to see the paintings or the sculptures. You don't know how to read them or appreciate the beauty or, or what the artist is trying to say or something like that. It just sort of like escapes you. It can do that the same thing with me too. But I, I do like to look at paintings. I kind of grew up with that in, that in a family like that. And I like to look at brush strokes and how do the, the painter use color and light and shadow and things like that. And I have an appreciation. And I try to figure out what... What's the author saying? Some, some paintings, if you have seen them before, they really are bad. And you may have made that judgment, but they're not all bad. Some of them are just like a one single monochromatic color on the, and you're supposed to look at that, gaze upon it, and figure out something about yourself. Well, just give up. That's a terrible painting. If you've ever seen a, a painting by Jackson Pollock before, if you might know who I'm talking about, it does look like he swallowed a box of crayons and then vomited on a, on a canvas. Um, and so there, there really isn't any meaning to that either. But, um, I, you know, I feel the same way to some degree uh, about music sometimes. I, I enjoy music like you do, and I listen to music. But having, having begun to hang around Adam Darnell, Pastor Adam, he hears things at a completely different level than I will ever hear. He can hear every single note that any musician is playing and knows exactly how they did it. He knows when I'm just listening to a, a rock song, that's a, with a really good guitarist, he can play that. He can actually play it. He knows exactly what the guy was doing. But, so I, I'm sort of, in a way, uh, my ears are blind 
to the appreciation, great appreciation of music. I don't know how you feel about that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I think that we ought to take what Mark is saying in chapter 10 as he describes disciples on the road with Jesus who have to constantly get their values and priorities readjusted, reevaluated, reprioritized that he's also speaking to us as followers of Jesus Christ. I think we probably ought to admit there might be a little bit of blindness in us. And I don't want that to happen, and I don't want that to happen to me either. A, a, a spiritual blindness is far, far worse than physical blindness. As, as he goes along the road, he's going to get opposition from Pharisees and religious leaders. They are completely blind, as the gospel writers describe them. But there is blindness, even in the disciples. That they've got to learn, and they've got to listen, and they have to ask God to and, and say, Lord, I want to see. I want to see better. So in this chapter, Jesus readjusts values and priorities in this chapter in four ways. Number one, he readjusts our, our, our idea of God's va- values or his ideals in particular, his ideals. Secondly, we see a readjustment about how God looks at neglected and weak people. Thirdly, how we see better how, how Jesus shows God's radical demands, radical demands, not just some duties, but radical demands in our lives. And then fourthly, Jesus shows us that what true greatness is, what true greatness means to God. And that means all of us, including myself, maybe especially myself, need to have a readjustment. So follow me first with God's ideals. Chapter 10 starts out with Jesus on the move again, lots of crowds, and another test from the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The Pharisees seem to want Jesus to make a statement about divorce that will maybe Make him make a statement that will get him in trouble with Herod, just like John the Baptist did, who, who criticized and condemned Herod for divorcing his wife for no reason at all and marrying his brother's wife. Maybe the Pharisees can, as a test, get him to say something because this is a sort of a question that everybody's always talking about. What's a legitimate divorce? What's allowable? What's permittable? Jesus may say something that will offend somebody and maybe even get in trouble with Herod. He replied to them, Jesus did, well, what did Moses command you? They replied, well, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus is not going to have a conversation about what is permissible or not. What he does is he goes straight to God's ideals. He says this, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Disciples don't actually get this, understand. They're actually following generally what the Pharisees are thinking, because it says at the end of this that they go talk to Jesus in the house and ask them some more questions about this. Moses' statement about divorce was an allowance not a command. He knew the sinfulness and selfishness of men and knew that divorce left women basically homeless and without any hope of remarriage. So the certificate gave her proof that she was not an adulteress, she was legally divorced, and and that she could be remarried. It gives her a chance to make it in life. Notice what Jesus does. He goes back to the beginning 
He goes back to God's ideal for marriage. God created male and female. In marriage, they are one. His image is not that a couple, two people are holding hands as they walk through life. His picture is not arm in arm, a male and a female. His picture is that they have become one. If one half of your body stops working or becomes less attractive, whether it's the left or the right side, you don't seek to cut yourself in half. That would be deadly. You don't cut yourself right down the middle. You work hard instead. You work hard to stay together and help both sides of your body cooperate and and help the other side. Like most normal people, I'm right-handed. So I do most things with my right hand. But I I would in no chance say like, well, because I'm right-handed and I I don't use my left hand as much, it's okay if it's cut off. It's not okay at all. We've just been watching a lot of basketball. Can you imagine the the psychological condition of somebody who goes up for a a jump shot with their right hand and then their left hand says, no, I'm going to block that shot? That's the kind of thing where you get some counseling if the left hand is blocking your shot, right? But so, So when you're thinking about ending marriage... You should stop finding reasons why you should part company. And really what you ought to do is, i got to figure out how I'm going to cut myself in half and how that's going to work out and be much better. Jesus is not ignorant, you guys, of adultery and abuse and abandonment. He knows about that. He just wants people to think first of God's ideals for marriage. And so often religious people want to ignore God's highest ideals. They want to forget about God's original intentions in his commandments or what he really is meaning. How far can I go and get away with it? What can I be allowed? What are the loopholes in life? What's the least I can do and still find favor with God? Religious people often ask those questions, whether they know it or not. Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 8, to bind the commandments on your hand, your forehead, and on the doorposts of your house. Now, He means for us to be ever always mindful of the holiness of God and obeying him. Not to do that literally. Think about what God's ideals are. Not to do that literally. Which is easier, you guys, getting a tattoo of a Bible verse, which I welcome you to do that, or to obey that Bible verse that you got a tattoo of. Which is easier, to obey one of those Bible verses that's stenciled on the walls of your house. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Okay, really? Is that true? It's easier to do things like that rather than do what the verse is actually saying. You guys, a tithe is 10%, right? 10% that you give to God from all that God has given you. That's not God's ideal. And neither is 20 or 30 or 40%. God's ideal is a generous, sacrificial heart that makes sure that the gospel goes out and that no person is neglected in all of those ministries that a church does. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan that really speaks to this, right? Religious people know that they're supposed to love their neighbor like they love themselves. And then they went, go and ask the question, but who actually, who is my neighbor? I need to find out who my neighbor is. When Jesus is trying to tell you, anybody and everybody you come across that needs help is your neighbor. So following Jesus entails seeking God's ideal values, getting to the heart of the matter, getting to God's original intentions. Disciples are a little bit blind there. Secondly, Jesus values neglected people. Well, you know that. We've been going through the whole gospel, and every gospel shows it over and over again that it goes for neglected people, the outsiders, the marginalized, weak people. Verse 13, 
People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. What makes Jesus indignant? What makes Jesus mad? Can you answer that question? Well, you have one right here. It's regarding children or weak people. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. Taking them, touching them, blessing them. Is there there a better picture of Jesus or a better picture of God in all of the Bible? Now, you guys, every society is always since the beginning of time been dividing itself into classes. Everybody, every society pays special attention to one category and then tends to ignore some other category. It's, it's relentless. It starts out in the home, right? You may feel that a sibling was more valuable than you are. Were you, are you, the, were you the favorite child at home? You know, the, the older, everybody always thinks the oldest child was favored. And then when there's several children, then the youngest one becomes the favored one. And us poor middle child children, we always get neglected, don't we? Can I hear an amen on that, right? Yeah, that's how we feel about it. It's that, that kind of thing that starts in the home. I mean, you can, you can begin to hear from the home like certain races of people or classes of people are inferior to us. That begins in the home. It continues on into school. In school, there's no, there's no society ever in the history of the world more classed than schools. It divides up instantly. The first day of school, it immediately divides up, and it stays that way. Even when I was a high school teacher, I had to constantly pay attention, make myself pay attention to the slower kids or the, or the weird kids or the gay kids because it was easier for me to pay attention to the smart ones and the attractive ones and the athletic ones. See how it works? But what about children? Well, you know what? Children make noises, smells, and messes. They increase their parents' workload. I mean, they just, they're just time and energy and money-consuming creatures that you brought out of the house. Here's something interesting. When, when children die, babies or little children or just teenagers, when they die, it is, it is really extra tragic. There, it, there is no tragedy like children dying. I remember even as a high school teacher, when one of my students would die, it was just completely different than when an adult was dying. It, but I, I think that's funny, but we, we think that's so bad because we think about their potential. We just see like, you, you, you never got to experience this, 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 and this. But what's really absurd and sinfully absurd to me is that, that we have no problem in our society about aborting a baby before it's born and saying, what, what has more potential, you guys, than a baby that hasn't even been born yet, but will mourn and weep about the child that's already been born when, when it dies in some sort of an accident or disease? That doesn't make any sense. Nothing will have more potential than an unborn baby. But that's how we look, though. Now, listen, Jesus has us to think about children and we have, to, we have to think about what, what is he saying about them that affects us. It's not just the way that we treat children, but how we're coming as children. Jesus shows that we should care for neglected people like children because there's no way to come to him other than as a child. If you came to Jesus for salvation and you truly came in repentance and faith, then Jesus did take you in his arms And if Jesus is taking you into his arms and saved you, then what was your state when you came? Think about it, you guys. 
Basically, you came saying, you guys, I, I, God, I'm not very good at combing my hair. I'm not good at keeping my shoes tied. The food on my face and the shirt means I'm not even good at putting food in my mouth. My wet underwear means I'm not even good controlling myself. And my coloring book shows you I'm not good at staying within the lines. In other words, I'm coming to you, Jesus, because I'm not doing life very well at all. And he takes you in his arms. But a follow Christ is to care about what is often easily neglected. Babies, thank you, all of you working in the nursery. I, I, I watch that and I love it. People, teenagers and adults sitting on the floor, sitting on the, a public school floor with little children. Thank you for taking care of teenagers. Thank you, all of those who work with Reborn. Watch out for singles, you guys. Watch out for single moms and the widowed, divorced, and seniors, the disabled and orphans, the weak, just people that don't look like you. That's who Jesus goes for. That's his values. On the road to Jerusalem, the disciples struggle to learn that Jesus cares especially for the neglected and the weak. Thirdly, Jesus also has radical demands. There's so much to say about this. There's a story in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they think is so important about this rich man who came to Jesus with his money and his self-righteousness. As he was setting out on a journey, verse 17, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. It's interesting to think about that. So you've admitted that there's only one good person, God, or, or maybe God in Jesus, Therefore, if there's only one, then you're not good. What is it that you think you can do then to become good when you are already about to say that you already kept the law? This is kind of a hopeless situation. Yet somehow he finds hope that maybe Jesus will declare him to be earning eternal life. Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud, and do honor your father and mother. He says, teacher, I've kept these, all of these from my youth. Jesus doesn't even bother to list the first of the commandments, which are our relationship toward God. I'm sure that Jesus knows that guy is going to say, oh, I've definitely kept them. You know, I worship only God. Of course, I, only, I don't take his name in vain. I keep the Sabbath and so on. Jesus just sort of goes right toward the ones that affect people, other people, your relationships with people. The man claims he knows how to keep the Ten Commandments, especially those how to treat people. He says, I'm good enough because all the things I don't do, I'm good because I don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, and so on. I've never done those things. I believe him. Does he love his neighbor as himself, though? But how about you? What is the sum of your righteousness? Is it described by, is it described at all? Is it described by all the things you don't do? I've never done this, 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 and this. I'm a good person. See all the things I've never done before? Looking at him, Jesus loved him. Said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus has to say twice to the disciples that it's very hard for wealthy people to get into the kingdom of God. He uses the graphic illustration. It's actually easier to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Their arms are just tightly around all their wealth and security and success, right? The disciples are astonished, though. They're blind to this. They don't see, because of their value system, that successful people cannot be in right favor with God. Because they think to themselves, if you've got a lot of money for successful, that in fact proves that God loves you, that you're approved by God. This rich man, he starts out right. He, he runs to Jesus. Do you remember when you used to run to Jesus? And now you're maybe just sort of walking along now? Shame on all of us. He kneels before Jesus. He asks ultimate questions. That's good. Not trivial moot questions, but really ultimate ones. That's good. But like the seed sown on soil around vines, this guy it comes to Jesus in the right way. It says, as if the plant is beginning to grow, but the vines grow around him and choke him, the vines of worldliness and, and wealth and the desire for things. This man responds well to Jesus, but Jesus wants him to see you're ignoring the poor around you. You see, you want Jesus and the world. But, you know, God doesn't save anyone with full hands and full pockets. You know, you really come to him that way. If you came to him at all, you have to unload your pockets. There's nothing there. My hands are empty, Jesus. I got nothing. Nothing in my hand I bring. You you all, listen, God does not save good people. He's never saved a good person in his life. God has never done that, and he never will. God saves people to come to him empty-handed with no righteousness at all and accepts God's righteousness. So Jesus affirms that God demands all or nothing. What hinders receiving eternal life is how we love our own goodness or we love our own wealth. So Jesus shows some, some of God's high demands. He, he devalues all worldly wealth and family and comforts in comparison to the eternal life to come in commitment to him. In fact, he actually says to the disciples, whatever you give up for me, you actually gain really a thousandfold with a new family and a new kind of security. Whatever you give up in Jesus' radical demands, he gives back to you. Lastly, Jesus shows us about true greatness. And again, disciples are confused and blind. Verse 35, James and John approached Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Now, Mark, surely you guys have picked this up. Mark is relentless in showing the disciples as people that are experts at missing the point over and over again. And we're, we're this close to Jerusalem. If we can find something positive about the brothers' request, at least that they're thinking about the future, that's good. Uh, they believe something about, about Jesus' glory and and him winning the day in the end. They, they believe that. That's good. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And they say, yes, we're able. Now, the cup that Jesus refers to is the expression of God's judgment over sin. His wrath, God's wrath is poured out on Jesus, all of God's wrath poured out on Jesus. To drink it is to experience it in full. It's not a taste or a sip, but a drinking to the last drop. Jesus takes it. The same thing about baptism. Baptism, Jesus refers to, is a full participation in death. 
It's to fully realize God's justified wrath over sin. We baptize by immersion because we identify with Jesus' death in that way. Jesus went all the way. He didn't stick his toe in the waters of death. Let me just sort of get an idea about what it feels like. Some, the waters of death didn't sort of pour over his head and get his head wet. He went all the way from vertical to horizontal in the grave because he's dead all the way and then raised on the third day. That's what's pictured by baptism. Can James and John experience that cup in baptism? No. But they will learn, will learn to follow Jesus to their own martyrdom. And that's the calling of all Christians to be ready to do that. Why do they have to learn first, though? Because they still don't grasp that before greatness and ruling with Christ, they must learn what God's standard of greatness is. It's to be a servant. How quickly do any of us grasp that role, the central role of the Christian life, to be a servant? Jesus will show the way himself in his majesty to become like us, to serve us, and to give his very life in payment for our sins. Jesus was indignant that anyone would hinder neglected people like children coming to him. The disciples, the Bible reads here, are indignant with James and John for presuming to be more important than them. Two, two kinds of people getting angry. One of them is Jesus' righteous anger. You neglect people. And then there's the anger of like, hey, why you guys can't be first? We want to be on the left and on the right hand, and an argument ensues. The truth is the very first people to be on Jesus' left and right as he entered his glory was not James and John. It was two thieves, one of them repenting. To be a servant, to be the slave of Christ, to be a servant of all, that's God's standard of greatness. Now listen, at the end of the chapter, Mark 10, the last miracle of healing in his gospel occurs just here. It is about blind Bartimaeus being healed and coming to faith in Christ. Jesus is, is on his way out. He's walking toward Jerusalem and there is a beggar on the side of the road who apparently has heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He can feel laying on the road, he can feel the of vibrations of large people coming down the road. He begins to hear the chatter of the crowd and begins to hear Jesus' name back and forth. And he says, I know this person. I've heard of this person. He'll heal me if I come to him. And so he begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he's told to shut up, which is what we do to the weaker, lesser people, just shut up, please. He cries even louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus stopped on the way to his mission, on the way to his death. He still has time for neglected nobodies like Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? This is a great question in evangelism too, by the way. You could do this when you're talking to people. People that you know a little bit, and you know that maybe they don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. You could say like, let me just ask you this. If Jesus was the son of God, if he was the person that the Bible says he was, what would you ask him to do for you? It's not a bad question. Um, Bartimaeus says, I, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. 
So this chapter ends with the last miracle that Mark records. It's the healing of a blind man, and I think it must be intentional that he put it just here and that it was the healing of a blind person. I think Mark is speaking to all who would follow Christ where we have to answer the question, am I blind? Do I have blind spots? Do I have cataracts? Am I having trouble really seeing Jesus' values? The religious leaders around Jesus are blind to who Jesus is because they're blind to their own sinfulness. They're blind to their own blindness. How do you tell a person who was born blind that they are blind? How do you tell somebody who's never seen anything, hey, I want you to know something, you've never seen anything? What are you talking about? I don't even know what you're talking about. Some people will stay blind because they will not hear the message that there is something. They won't believe that there is something out there that is beyond them. The disciples who claim to be following Jesus are blind to almost every value Jesus places on people. His values, radical commitment, and ultimate sacrifice. They struggle to see the mission of God. Do you struggle to see that? What is the mission of God? Why are we even here? That's a good question. Are you blind to it? Do you see? What is the mission of Jesus? Go back to verse 32, please. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid taking the 12 aside again, <laughs> again, he, he's this close to death and say like, I've, I've still got to take time to talk to the disciples because they don't get things. He began to tell them the things that would happen to him. This is the third time. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and he will rise after three days. What a great picture of the Christian life. It's on a journey, you're on a road. You have to remember that. Don't start building houses. Don't start, start making, getting roots down in this world when you know you're on a road. You don't build houses on roads. When you come in community with each other, that, that reminds you over and over again, we're just pilgrims, we're still walking, we're on a road. And also this, it's uphill. It's uphill. You know why you're tired? I mean, why you're tired of this world? Because it's uphill. And being in community also reminds us, oh, that's why we're struggling, because it is hard. Together we remind ourselves that we gotta endure and persevere and be careful. The Christian life is following Jesus who's in front of us. He's our leader. We're his followers. Every day you say to yourself, over again, not my will but yours, Lord Jesus. Not my will but yours. And what awaits us for Jesus, it was Jerusalem, his destiny, and his glory. The place where he fulfills his mission and gives up everything. Jerusalem can represent everything we must be willing to get up to follow Jesus. But Jerusalem also represents a place of Jesus' victory and glory, like I said. He conquered death. Jerusalem is also our future. It's our destination. It is also our glory. We may die in Jerusalem, but when we get to Jerusalem, after that, there is glory and there is blessing and there is everything that God is going to give us. That's why John will later in the book of Revelation talk about the new Jerusalem coming down, where the new Jerusalem really is both our Lord Jesus and our destination, our inheritance. But along the road, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to reevaluate. There's much blindness to be healed from. There are many things we need to see. I am still struggling. I am I'm kind of old now. I've been reading the Bible actually for quite a while. I really have. 
and I am still blind to things. I'm struggling with all of these things. I know it. On the road with Jesus, you've got to change priorities. You've got to have a different value system. We have to adopt God's ideals rather than human interpretations of righteousness. For instance, we should broaden our scope of grace to others. It, the word itself should be seen for what what's intention is, what its ideal is, not where, where it could be like grace to them, but not to them. It should broaden. Do things out of love and gratitude, not just duty. We have to care about God's neglected. More and more, the weak and the helpless, the abused and ignored, the messy and the unattractive. All the hard cases. Oh, hard cases. Invite them. Go toward them, not away from them. Talk to them. Touch them. We have to accept God's demands. It is all or nothing. Every single day in your life, there's an idol pops up. It's amazing how that guy just pops up all the time. You've got to demolish it. You cannot love God and money. Today, ask yourself, not if, not if, but how much you love your wealth. Whatever is an idol or could become an idol must be demolished. Jesus cannot be one of the clubs that you guys belong to. Sunday can't be a hobby. This has got to be our life. This is hard. And we have to raise ourselves to God's standard of greatness, to be the lowest around here, to be the servant of all. That's hard. The world has a completely different standard of, of greatness, but we must always say, I must be last. I must be last. So in every one of these, Jesus leads the way. He's the perfect example, and we must follow on this road to Jerusalem. Let's pray. <clears throat> Oh, Father, thank you for the words of our Lord Jesus, how he interrupts our value system, our priorities, and in fact, Lord, showing us there's a lot of blindness in our lives. As I consider myself and I consider my dear church, I pray for your help that we would see where we are blind this week and readjust our lives and our values. I pray that, Father, for that grace. Continue to accept our worship today. But for those that might have been here with us who are blind to the reality of the Lord Jesus, of who he is, of his death on the cross, his resurrection for our sins, and maybe they need to see the self-righteous blindness or, the, or the, the blindness of their love of wealth, pray that you bring conviction, repentance, and faith and save them today. I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior today. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.